Peace be with you. Can we give Kristen a round of applause here? Thank you for all those announcements. She worked really hard on this. Um, I'm so grateful to be here today. I'm so grateful to the pastors for allowing me to preach. And um, We're going to be in Isaiah 11 if you have a Bible. Um, we actually have read Isaiah 11 already, but we're going to get into it. But before I get into the, uh, to our text, I have a question for you. Anybody planning on traveling like over the holidays? Anybody? Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Crop. He's holding it down for me. Anybody? Anybody travel this past year? Vacation? Anything? Anybody really bad at traveling? Can you be bad at traveling? Actually, that's, yes, you can. My wife tells me I'm very bad at it, actually. Like, you can, I'm, I'm very bad at traveling. And I, I learned this um, this past summer, actually. Um, we went to Hilton Head. Anybody, Hilton Head? Anybody? Yeah, it's an awesome place. 11-hour drive. And um, actually, the vacation was really great. My wife was like, man, we had such a restful we, had, we got to go to the beach every day. It was awesome. It was awesome. But she's like, the vacation was awesome, but getting there was not fun. You're not a fun guy to travel with. <laughs> um, she was like, you know, like we're so, we're, our main objective is to get to the destination. And it's like nothing else. We have no room for anything else. Like I want to get there as quickly and efficiently as possible. Like when we stop, we only stop to get gas, maybe a meal. We got snacks in the car and we, we have to be as quick and efficient. It's so bad that I don't let my children drink anything. Literally, like you get a sip of water with your fries. You get a sip, right? It's, it's, that's how bad it is. It's super bad. It's, and they're like dehydrated and tired and they don't bother us. It's awesome, but they're miserable. <laughs> And we're scarring them for life. When they get older, they're going to be like, everybody gets drinks and we're going to stop every five minutes. Um, but it, I, it was funny, this trip revealed to me as we were reflecting on this, and she was kindly telling me that I'm horrible to travel with. She, uh, she was like, hey, I think you're just so consumed with the destination that you don't enjoy, there's no enjoyment in getting there. Like, you don't, you, you don't know how to exist in between getting to, the, to like where we're trying to be. And I actually thought that was really insightful because I see that in other patterns in my life. College students, you definitely feel this, right? I got to get that degree. We got to finish. We got to reach our goal, right? And then, but like the learning actually happens all in between it. Like the experience of like, you're, you're trying to arrive somewhere and you're trying to get to a destination, but like you, it's the whole existing in between, right? That's, that's what Advent is. It's this as Pastor Matt brought out last week, it, this is a season of tension. It's a season where we're just trying to figure out how to exist in the space in between. We have a blessed hope. Christ has come. We know this from the scripture. We know he's coming again. Amen? He's coming again. We have a blessed hope for the future. If you're a Christian, you have a, a hope that is good. But it's this whole time in between. I grew up in a church culture that really was like all about what's to come. And, but it was like almost passive. Like it's like we're just waiting to get out of here because heaven's coming. Right? And I, I don't know if that's your experience in the church, but I think this is the tension that we experience. But this tension that we experience is actually a means of hope. Our faith is not, our hope is not passive. It's present in spite of circumstances and struggle, loss, uncertainty, but
but ultimately our hope is practiced. And that's what this whole series is about. It's practicing hope, practicing the hope that we have right now. And one of the ways that we practice that, and our kind of our topic today, is peace. We practice our hope through peace. God wants us to be hopeful peacemakers. I actually think that the, one of the major, major center goals of our life as disciples to Jesus is to become a peacemaker. And so today our text, it actually gives us a vision of what this heavenly peace is looking like, this hopeful peace that's to come, this future. And we see it in Isaiah 11. And I'm going to give you a little context before we get into this reading. At this point, it's a really strange part of history for the nation of Israel to receive this message of hope. Isaiah has been given a vision, a word from the Lord. And in that vision, he's actually Jerusalem the city of peace, that's literally what it means in Hebrew. He calls it Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord calls Jerusalem, the city of peace, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't know that reference, go ahead and read Genesis. It's not a kind word that God says about his people. He has told them at this point that your worship is fake. I don't even want, I have enough sacrifices. I don't need any more. I don't want it. Your festivals, they're meaningless and empty. Stop doing them. They're not getting to the point of what I'm trying to be, form you into. And ultimately, God is going to send other countries to conquer them. The Assyrians are coming. The enemies of Israel are coming. And they're going to conquer them. And eventually, they're going to be taken into slavery in Babylon. But inserted in this vision is a, this beautiful picture of peace. And that's where we're going to find our text today. So if you have your Bible, we can stay seated for this reading Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. Hear this word from the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and, his, and the breath, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place 
shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. What a, what a beautiful picture we get here. It's kind of strange, too. Some weird imagery. We get a picture of a, of a stump, like a cut-down tree, and then a shoot coming out of it, something growing. We get a picture of a mountain. But then we get these pictures of animals, but they're not doing animal things. They're not doing what we expect animals to do. Wolves are lying down with lambs. Lions lying down with cattle. And they're all being led by little babies. I have this little imagery of my one-year-old just walking around playing follow the leader with lions and ox and things like that. Isn't that strange? It's kind of fun a little bit. Then babies playing with deadly snakes and children playing with deadly snakes like they're toys. Like they're like play animals. What we have here is a picture of predators laying down with prey. This, pa- this passage is actually, it's, it's a vision of hope for the prophet. It's a gift of hope to the Lord because his people, so his people aren't defeated in what's going to happen. It's like a little gift in the face of judgment and sorrowful circumstances. One Jewish scholar put it this way about the role of the prophet. What saved the prophets from despair was their messianic vision and the idea of man's capacity for repentance. The vision and the idea affected their understanding of history. The prophet is a person who, living in dismay, has the power to transcend his dismay. Over all the darkness of experience hovers the vision of a different day. It was the prophet's role to have a picture of peace that was completely out of this world. The world couldn't handle it. It didn't have the stomach to imagine a world that peaceful. It had to be given from the Lord. We can't imagine it even now because we live in a world that's full of, of no peace. We live in a world where the powerful crush the weak. We live in a world where the poor marginalized are dismissed and taken advantage of. Nations are conquering weaker nations the strong over the weak. But this vision given to Isaiah, it gives us a vision of peace where the weak are laying down with the strong. There's no fear of devouring or struggle. Babies are playing with snakes and not threatened. And that is only a peace that can be accomplished by God. And I think that's the point. This vision of peace that, we, that gives us hope can only be accomplished by God. The Lord is giving us a picture of a future age where there's so much peace, it's unimaginable. Like, it's unimaginable. It's like, it's, it's so beautiful that God would have to accomplish it. And that's what he does. This peace would be brought by a king. And that's who the root of Jesse is. This root of Jesse is actually, it's a person. Jesse's a really important person in the Bible, if, you, if you've read it in any of the Old Testament, Jesse is the father of David. He's the king, one of the greatest kings of Israel. And God made a promise, a covenant with him, that his throne, there would be somebody sitting on his throne forever and ever. And this person would right, rightly judge. This king would, would be a righteous judge. The spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. His word would be powerful. His righteousness and faithfulness would be seen on him like clothing. And he would bring ultimate peace. 
And what's amazing is that all of these pictures of this king are pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is also, he's the true king. He's the son of David. If you read in the Gospels, when they call him son of David, that's what they're referring to. He's this root of Jesse. He's, he's the king who is going to rule and bring in this peace. If you, it, this language is used here in Isaiah 11. It's also used in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21. It's all the same. They're all referencing one another and they're talking about Christ. All of this will be fulfilled in the second advent when Jesus returns, which we're eagerly waiting for. But again, our question for today is what about right now? This is our primary question to examine during Advent. What do we do now with this hope of peace that Christ will bring? And the answer is this. We practice. Like we, we practice. We practice hope by becoming peacemakers. I actually think that this is the, one of the highest, the most, again, the most highest and central goals of our discipleship is that you and I would be formed into peacemakers. And Jesus actually, in his first advent, when he came to earth, he actually gives us instructions on this. It's, it's, God doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't leave us guessing. He actually gives us instruction in one of the most famous sermons ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you may know this. As, they're called the Beatitudes, right? In Matthew 5, 1 through 11. And we're going to spend some time looking at this. And if you look at the structure in Matthew 5, 1 through 11, the high point of it, all of the things that are happening point to this one line, blessed are peacemakers, because they're going to be sons of God. They're children of God. So how do we become peacemakers? Well, I kind of have four stages for us, four experiences, things that we go through, and, and practices that actually form us into peacemakers. And it's all based on, this, on these beatitudes. So our first one, we're, we're going to spend some time in this for the rest of our time together. The first stage of us becoming informed into peacemakers is that we must have a humble posture to judgment, discipline, and loss. We must have a humble posture to judgment, discipline, and loss. Matthew 5, 3 through 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Our first experience in becoming peacemakers is actually being brought low. It's being humbled. And this is so painful, and it hurts. Like, this is like the start of it. Like, you actually have to be humbled. You have to be brought down low in order to understand God's mercy and what he's doing. And this, this humbling, it takes place in many forms. And maybe you may be in this season right now. I'm kind of coming out of a season of this in my own life. Maybe you're experiencing personal loss, relational fallout, or maybe just sin. Like you are actively pursuing sin in your life. And a lot of times these circumstances leave us stunned and bewildered and we just don't know what to do. And I, I think that it's actually built in us and when people are going through the deepest, darkest times of their life, they shout out, oh God, what are, where are you? Like it's almost like built into us. 
And this is kind of the story of Israel at the time of Isaiah. God would, is putting them in judgment for their oppressive work, their fake worship, and their lack of faith. But judgment was coming to them for a particular, particular reason. There was, it was to change them and lead God's people to be completely and wholly dependent upon him. A.J. Swoboda said it this way, Judgment is God's way of responding to our incessant desires to choose anything else over him. God will tell us about it. He will judge us. But God's judgment is so much more graceful than we might think. They say that judgment is clouded by love, and that rings true for the Christian. God's judgment is always clouded by Christ's love for us. Judgment is a form of grace. In judgment, you may feel rejected, but simultaneously being acknowledged as a human being who is loved. By taking time to confront you, God is equally taking time to love you where you are. The Lord disciplines those who he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. We have forgotten in our culture that there's a difference between judgment and condemnation. If we are in his love, we can be judged but we are never condemned. In fact, that is why Jesus can say that he did come to judge, but not to condemn. If we want to become peacemakers, we have to submit to God's judgment and discipline. We have to. This is, this is like the start of the refining process in your life and, and in my life. If we try to circumvent the judgment of God, it will not go well for you. Actually, it will lead to the condemnation that is so feared. If you want to learn more about this, you can see it in Isaiah 30 and 31, where Israel tries to go and not be conquered by the Assyrians and not go into captivity. They actually go to Egypt. They want to flee God's judgment, and it does not go well for them. If we try to get around this process, we're, we're going to circumvent a necessary component for us to receive God's mercy and his peace. Maybe a helpful posture to you during these times of heartache and struggle and loss or failure is like maybe have the question, what, God, what are you teaching me right now? What are you doing? Maybe some of you, that's your question right now. Like, I'm trying to, God, I just want to know what you want for me. How are you trying to get my attention, God? That's what this stage is all about. We must have a humble posture to judgment, discipline, and loss. Our second stage is that we must have a radical hunger and thirst for God and his purity. Matthew 5, 6 through 8, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, this stage is is completely dependent upon the first stage when you've experienced radical loss, when you've been humbled and brought low, this is where where God's working. Like, it may feel like he's far, but he's actually really, really close to you. We're getting somewhere. He's totally close. This is where you can finally receive mercy, the mercy that you can give to others. You can receive it now because you've been brought low. We hunger for God through, this is the whole spiritual practices. It first starts with space and rest. You have to have time and space for God in your life. You need to sit and you need to rest from your labors. 
That's the first thing. We need to rest from our, our labors. That way we can sit and pray and fast for God's presence in our life. We can spend time in his word and let it wash over our souls so we can learn about God's character. It's through confession, a confession of our sins to God and to those who are walking alongside of of us, making it known so that they can encourage us and love us and hold us accountable. And that way we can change of our confession of sin to a confession that Jesus is Lord. That confession is so important. But you have to be at rest. You have to have space in your life for this, to hunger and thirst for God. These are practices that cultivate a deep love of God in us. This is how we learn mercy. And this is how God changes our motives and he, get, he forms a purity in us. This is the essence of being a disciple of Jesus. James K. Smith says this, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more about hungering and thirsting than of knowledge and believing. Spiritual practices give us space to cultivate a love of God and be restored in it. From being humbled and experiencing loss, this is where we're restored by his love and mercy. We must have a radical hunger and thirst for God and his purity. The third stage This is the practice. We practice peacemaking as children of God. Our identity as children of God. We are practicing peacemaking as children of God and all that comes with it. And all that comes with it is not always great in this side of eternity. Matthew 5, 9 through 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peacemaking is at the heart of who we are as God's children. Your identity is a peacemaker. And that's all, that, that can only be done through God's work in you. It's a work of the Spirit for those who have been redeemed by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, wrote this, Here then we are reminded once more that the outworking of the Christian of the, in the Christian, of the Christian life is altogether and entirely different from everything that can be known by any man who is not a Christian. That is the message that recurs in every one of the Beatitudes in which obviously our Lord desired to emphasize. He was establishing an entirely new and different kingdom. There is nothing more fatal than for the natural man to think that he can take the Beatitudes and try to put them into practice. Here once more, in this particular beatitude, the one about peacemaking, it reminds us that it is utterly impossible. Only a new man can live this new life. Peacemaking is a work of God, and that's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. And you will continue to do it through the Spirit's power, because it's the only way that you can get through the persecution and sorrow that comes with it. Jesus promises that. This is why in Isaiah 53... 
3 and 4, it says that Jesus was despised. He was a man of sorrows. He was afflicted. And his disciples would differ, wouldn't have any difference. They would actually experience the same thing. John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world's going to hate your message of peace. And you're striving to be a peacemaker because the world can't understand it. That's why we need visions of animals laying down with predators and prey and, and playing with snakes and things like that. We need those images because it's completely opposite of our world. And that's, the world's going to hate that message because it cannot imagine anything different. As disciples of Jesus, we have been given a calling to be peacemakers in a world that doesn't want peace. It can't stomach it. And this is why being a peacemaker is such a brave practice. It takes bravery. It, it's, it's scary. And we have to act, conquer the fear of it through the Holy Spirit. It's a brave practice. The outcome for Jesus of preaching peace was crucifixion. It was death on a cross. It was ridicule and humiliation. And we are called to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And that is a cross of peace, of ridicule, but also peace. So we practice peacemaking as children of God, even with everything that comes with it. And then our last, our last step actually isn't in the text, but it's kind of implied. We continue peacemaking as a process of continued renewal. We continue. We continue peacemaking as a process of continued renewal. And this is the hard part about peacemaking is that we are going to mess up and fail. I am chief of sinners with that. We are going to mess up and fail over and over again. Paul tells us in Romans 7 that we're like at war with the flesh. In Hebrews, it says we're not citizens of this world, but we're still here. So we're always going to be at war. We're going to be at war internally and externally because we're striving for peace and we're going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. But then we're going to be like Brian McKnight. We're going to start back at one. And if you get that reference, you're awesome. <laughs> we're going to start back at one. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to stage one. We're going to mourn our losses. We're going to lick our wounds. We're going, to be, we're going to be humbled. We're going to be cut down. But then we're going to go to Jesus, and we're going to hunger and thirst for him again. We're going to hunger, and he's going to speak to us, and he's going to teach us, and he's going to form you, and he's going to love you and show you mercy in a beautiful way at that time in your life. And he's going to, going to form you more and more into the image of the Son. He's going to form you more into a beautiful picture of peace that's coming. He's going to keep doing it, but it's still going to happen. I think, I, think, I don't know if I was naive as a kid, but I, I think that I thought peace was the absence of conflict. No, it's, it's actually, it's something that is practiced over and over again. It's, it's, it's practiced over and over again in spite of all the conflict that we feel. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us 
for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Theologian Jonathan Pennington writes this, Beatitudes are description and commendations of the good life. A prophet and sage Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true flourishing and full flourishing now and in the age to come. We are practicing for eternity. We're practicing for the Garden of Eden again, for new heavens and new earth. When we make peace and we become people of peace, we are practicing every day this vision that Isaiah had, that John had, that Jesus had for his people, that we would be on his holy mountain, that there would be no more, there would be no warring, there would be no fighting, there would be no evil or wickedness done. We're practicing for peace. We are practicing for the hope of his return. And this gives us anticipation. We are, practice, we are practicing life for another world that's heavenly and eternal where Christ would rule in peace forever. That's what we're doing. And so as we come to a time of communion, this is a meal of hope because you're reminded of the peace that God earned for you. The tension of peace is that it always comes with a price. The cross was a place of ridicule, pain, and rejection, but it was also a place for peace. Jesus could have sent 10,000 legions of angels to fight his enemies, to destroy them, but instead he laid down his life. He willingly took the cross, and it was to earn our peace and show what it cost us to take up his cross every day, to become a peacemaker. So your peace and my peace was won. It was won by a broken body, Christ's body, which is represented by the bread, and his blood shed, represented by the wine or juice. If you um, are gluten-free, we have a station up here as well. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you don't take communion today, but please consider what discipleship would look like and what peace you could be a part of in the future. And if you are a Christian, take this with great peace. Take this with great peace. I hope that this season for you is a season of peace, that right now that you experience God's peace in your life and that you practice peace now and as you are, as you are a disciple when you're walking with Christ in your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so grateful for the peace that you have given us. It is, um, it is something that we need to practice. I, I ask that you form it. I pray, Spirit, that you would, you would convict where there needs to be conviction, that we would confess where we need to confess. But I also pray for peace if, for people who are wrestling right now. I pray that they would take your yoke upon them that they would find rest. Please bless us, Lord. We thank you for a hope of your future coming where you will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death will be no more and peace will reign. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.